You're listening to a message from Canby Foursquare Church in Canby, Oregon. We pray that this message will be an encouragement to you. Visit canbyfoursquare.com to learn more. It's good to be here this morning. Thanks for joining us. We are in a series called The Gift of Desperation. Now, if you haven't been here, or if that term is new to you, you're probably thinking, how is desperation a gift? Well, um, I'll speak from my own experience, that when I've been in these places where I cannot fix what needs to be fixed, I'm broken and I can't fix what is broken, and I finally give it all to God, I meet God in these places that I would never have met him before. That is the gift of desperation. And Jesus is waiting for us to get to that place because he wants to meet us there. I'm going to start with the end in mind. There's going to be prayer teams at the end of this message. And I would encourage you to prepare yourself right now to go up for prayer. If there are places in your life you're looking for breakthroughs, Go and agree with somebody and meet. let Jesus meet you in those places because you're going to experience his presence, his grace, his faithfulness in ways that you've never experienced him before when we give it all to him. The good news is the gift of desperation is for everyone. There's no respect or a person. So you get the gift of desperation, you get the gift of desperation, and you get the gift of desperation. It's for all of us. Father Tom Weston says this. He has a health tip, and his health tip is ask for help. The gift of desperation is when you are desperate enough, you realize you cannot survive as a self-contained, self-obsessed unit, You are, and you start asking for help. And, you know, as we unpack this gift, because it's not only a gift to us, it is a gift to us because we realize how much Jesus wants to meet us in those places. And so, yes, it's this, I wouldn't give it up for anything. Places I've been have been heartache, heartbreaking, but then I meet Jesus in those places and I discover him in ways that I would never give up those hard times. But it's also a gift to each other. Because when we've gone to the places I, to the places where we say, I can't do this on my own anymore, we are now endowed with this ability to see others differently. Because now we're not quick to judge one another. We're more equipped with compassion and empathy that maybe we haven't experienced to the length that we will have when we get to our own place of desperation. And because we are aware of our own broken places and the scars that we have from just life, we have this larger heart for people who are broken, who are scarred, and enslaved. And so we keep unwrapping this gift of desperation, and we realize how clearly we see Jesus when he meets us in those places, right? And the more we see Jesus, the more courage we have to stop hiding behind our beauty, our intelligence, our power, our education, whatever it is that you hide behind. He gives us courage as we begin to share and be able to be honest with the places that are broken in our life. 
we have this truthfulness in our life. And we begin bearing our weakness as Jesus bore his on the cross. God is intersecting our world in tangible and unmistakable ways. We no longer just feel bad for those who are desperate. Well, I feel bad that you're in such a bad place. But because we've been honest with our own desperation, we don't just feel bad. We have a kinship connection. We get to a place of truthfulness, and it's very hard. It's very hard. But it's also very liberating. In 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10, it says this. Each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults, hardships, persecutions, and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. New York City had a blackout, um, power outage, outage, 1959. The city went dark. And so it was in August, it was hot, it was a very, very hot August in that there was no wind or breeze going and it was sweltering heat. Well, when nighttime came and people who live in high rises, they were in trouble because one, the elevators didn't work. Their fans didn't work. If they had air conditioning, that didn't work. They opened their windows, and the air was still and hot. Well, everybody was in this place of trouble, and people were beginning to suffer from heat stroke, except for one building in New York. It was the building where 200 residents lived, and that that building was the Jewish Guild for the Blind. They understood their building with their eyes closed. They knew every inch and cranny. They knew how to get in and out in the darkness because they always had. There were 70 residents, cited um, employees also, that that lived in that building. And so it was one of those instances where the blind led the sighted. Helen Keller once wrote, The only thing worse than being blind is having sight and having no vision. We are blind in areas, and we're going to talk about how Jesus wants to meet us in those areas that he wants to show us who he is. We can be culturally blind, but this morning we're going to be talking about spiritual blindness. We're going to be looking at John 9, 1 through 12. There's three things that we're going to see here. We have a blind man who was a beggar, and then we have three people who show us um, how we can remain blind if we keep ourselves from seeing, really, from seeing our own desperate need and how God wants to intersect. So let's read John 9, beginning in verse 1. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. Rabbi, his Disciples asked him, why was the man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? It was not because of his sins or his parents' sins, Jesus answered. This happened so the power of God could be seen in him. We must quickly carry out the task assigned us by the one who sent us. The night is coming and no one can work. 
and then no one can work. But while I'm here in the world, I am the light of the world. Then he spit on the ground, and he made mud with the saliva and spread the mud over the blind man's eyes. He told him, go wash yourself in the pool of Siloam. Siloam means scent. So the man went and washed and came back seeing. His neighbors and others who knew him as a blind beggar asked each other, isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? Some said he was, and others said, no, he just looks like him. But the beggar kept saying, yes, I'm the one. I'm the same one. They asked, who healed you? What happened? He told them, the man they called Jesus made mud and spread it over my eyes and told me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash yourself. So I went and washed, and now I can see. Where is he now, they asked. I don't know, he replied. So I want to pause there for a moment, and I want to talk about what causes us to be blind. So number one is, like the disciples, I can be blinded by misplaced focus. Hey, look over there. Don't look at me. (laughs) There must be something uh, more interesting over there. It says they were asking the question, why is this man born blind? Was it because of his sin or his parents' sins? It was the wrong focus. It was the wrong question to ask. Their question should have been, who else are you going to heal today, Jesus? Who who, who are the other people that you're going to touch and make whole? Whose life are you going to change today? But instead, they were deflecting, and they were saying, hey, why, who's to blame here? Who's to blame? Why is this guy blind? The disciples saw wrongdoing, but Jesus saw a man in need. They were asking that proverbial question, why do bad things happen to people? There must be an answer for that. And, you know, they, these are the disciples. They hung around with Jesus, so, you know, they want to look smart, and they want to look like they have it all together. So, you know, let's have a philosophical discussion about why this man was born blind. And then they were, you know, they were asking um, Jesus all these questions, and it's like they were stroking their beards and saying, let's have a philosophical discussion about this, because this is really interesting. We don't want to look at our own brokenness. Let's look at why this man is born blind. And regardless of why, it doesn't matter why, whether, he, whether our own brokenness was brought on by something we did or it was brought on to us, The thing about desperation, desperation is our means to see Jesus. So we're blind when we shift the attention away from ourselves and our personal places of brokenness. And let's let's talk about other people. Let's talk about other people's problems. We get stuck when we are neck deep in trouble or we're in this place where we can't figure out our own stuff. And we want to blame somebody else. That's misplaced focus. When Jesus is saying to us, would you just look at who I am and trust me with what you have and what you need? It says that Jesus spit on the ground and he made mud and he told this man to go wash. And so the man went and he came back seeing I have a picture of where he sent this man. This is the Pool of Siloam, and we visit this uh, site when we're in Israel. And this site is a long ways. He had to go a long ways with mud on his eyes, down a lot of steps to work to wash in the Pool of Siloam. But first of all, would you agree that 
putting mud on somebody's eyes after you've spit in dirt is weird. <laughs> it's kind of weird. He thought, um, you know, I don't know what this man thought. And I don't know what you think. But God works in a lot of different ways. But, you know, if we want to kind of think about some of the things that Jesus, why Jesus does the, the, what he does, one of the things that I thought about is he created man out of dirt. He created man out of dust. And is he doing a recreation here in this man's sight and in his life? Not only that, I think he does things like this just to keep things mixed up. You know, otherwise we're going to think he touched him that way, so when Jesus speaks, that means I'm going to get healed or I'm going to have my problem solved. Where Jesus does things the way he does it because he's God and he's sovereign, and he can do what he wants to do. Sometimes he just rebukes the disease. Sometimes he touches. Sometimes they, he wants us to touch him. There's a lot of different ways, and the important point is that we need to pay attention that we can't establish a certain method of how Jesus is going to meet us in our brokenness. In our places of desperation, he will meet us we can be guaranteed that. But it may not look like the next person or the person that you want it to happen like that. There's no formula. He works differently in our lives, and he does that because he knows us. He knows what we need. I know for me, in these places of desperation, it starts off like, God, help me. And I want these instant answers. I want him to meet me. I want it to be taken care of. I want to be rescued. And when he doesn't, then I can either run away or I can press in. And when I press in, I find that he's uncovering things that I didn't realize I was in desperate need of his touch. So he does things the way that is best for us because he wants us to be whole. He has the freedom and the liberty to work in our lives as he wishes. So then the people around town who know this man, because this man's been around, he's been a beggar, so he's familiar, they're saying, hey, isn't this the blind guy? Oh no, this isn't the blind guy um, because he can see. I mean, obviously, he's not the blind guy. He can see. But it looks like him. He's dressed like the blind guy. And the blind guy is saying, it's me. It is me. I am he. I'm the blind guy who was healed by Jesus. And I love this. And I think this is an important thing to stop and look at this. He has no shame of who he was and what God has done in his life. I'm the beggar, and I was blind. His focus now is crystal clear. Jesus met me. I'm not ashamed of that. There's power in our story. No one can dispute it because it's your story. It's hard sometimes to, to accept changes and to see the work of God in certain people. If we've known them to be this way all their life, and then we begin to see them differently, it's really hard sometimes to accept that, to believe that, to trust that. But you know, the same is said for us. There's things that we have lived and done, and habits that we have, 
that God is changing us. And sometimes he changes us really quickly. I mean, you know, wow, we're just redeemed. We have, we're different. Most of the times it's subtle and it's growing and it's like a little by little and people aren't sure, you know, that you're not the same person you were. But to give grace because God is working in those places and to keep our focus on him. I want to read the rest of the passage that we're going to look at this morning. It's 11 verses, so stick with me here. They took the man who had been blind to the Pharisees because it was on the Sabbath that Jesus had made the mud and healed him. The Pharisees asked the man all about it. So he told them, he put the mud over my eyes and when I washed it away, I could see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man Jesus is not from God for he's working on the Sabbath. Others said, but how could an ordinary sinner do such miraculous signs? So there was a deep division of opinion among them. Then the Pharisees again questioned the man who had been blind and demanded, What's your opinion about this man who healed you? The man replied, I think he must be a prophet. The Jewish leaders still refused to believe the man had been blind and could now see, so they called in his parents. They asked them, Is this your son? Was he born blind? If so, how can he see? Now see, his parents replied, We know this is our son and that he was born blind, but we don't know how we can see or who healed him. Ask him. He's old enough to speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had announced that anyone saying Jesus was the Messiah would be expelled from the synagogue. That's why they said, he's old enough. Ask him. So for the second time, they called in the man who had been blind and told him God should get the glory for this. Because we know this man, Jesus, is a sinner. He says, I don't know whether he's a sinner, the man replied, but I know this. I was blind, but now I see. What causes us to be blind? Like the Pharisees, I can be blinded by misplaced fervor. Fervor is when my righteousness creates cruelty. When I am so bent on being right that I don't care about the people around me. It's a passion that is directed in a wrong way and it offends and it it wounds others. Misplaced fervor can look like stubbornness. This is the way it's supposed to be. This is the way everyone should do it. We don't allow any other variation. This is it. And it turns into this arrogance that we are better than others. It says that for the second time, they called this man who'd been blind, and, and God should get the glory for this, because we know this man is a sinner. The Pharisees were so bent on being right that they could not celebrate that a blind beggar now has sight and has a promising future. They missed it. They couldn't even celebrate that God had performed this miracle in this man. They also were stuck on law above love. The very act of Jesus taking the mud and mixing it with his saliva was working on the Sabbath. The Pharisees had law, and they had laws for laws, and laws for laws. And this was one of the sabbatical laws that Jesus 
did not do correctly. He worked on the Sabbath. And the work was this. It was this simple. He took mud, he spit in it, and he kneaded it into mud right there. That's the wrongdoing. Jesus was working on the Sabbath. He was kneading, like kneading bread. And so, he, so he's a sinner. We can't, we can't allow this. We're not going to let this happen. So they missed, they missed Jesus. They completely missed seeing Jesus because of their misplaced fervor. And you know what? All of us have experienced that. All of us have passions that have mis- been misguided. Like the Pharisees, we all have a little Pharisee in us. And I'm going to say it. Um, if you don't think you do, then you probably do. <laughs> this mi- misplaced fervor can look like passion that's been misguided on the sidelines of football games and soccer games and volleyball games and things like that. We're passionate, we're saying things, and we're, over, we're overworked about certain things. There's a, there was misplaced fervor in my sweet, gentle daughter-in-law. So soft-spoken, such a graceful woman. But when we were watching the Dodgers, there was some misplaced fervor there. I mean, in all of us. So, boy, I'm not pointing fingers because we were all saying things that um, we didn't like and we wanted to, you know, wanted certain people to get thrown out of the game and, you know, that sort of stuff. That's misplaced fervor. We can all experience that and we can all agree that we can have passion that is misplaced and we hurt people when it comes to people that Jesus loves. A great example of misplaced fervor is coming up this, at the end of this month. It's called Black Friday. And <laughs> Black Friday, um, because only in America, people trample others for sales exactly one day after being thankful for what they already have. So um, that's misguided fervor. So all of us can agree that we understand what that looks like. But passion is good. Fervor is good. A passion to know Jesus more and more, that's good. That's a good passion. That's good fervor. A fervor to love. In 1 Corinthians 13, it talks about faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of those is love. It says we can prophesy. We can give to the poor. We can have faith that moves mountains. But if we don't love it's worthless. It means nothing. has no value. Zip. Zero. Without love. Fervor without love is dangerous. Misplaced fervor can hurt and distance people that Jesus loves. The last thing that causes blindness is, like the parents, I can be blinded by misplaced fear. The Jewish leaders, they called the parents over. They said, you know, tell me what happened here. Do you know what's going on? And these parents were so gripped with fear that they essentially threw their son under the bus. Ask him. We're staying out of it because we're really afraid. They were concerned with all the what-ifs. And we've all faced that. There's a word for people who are afraid. It's normal. The word is normal. We've all experienced fear in our life. 
It's when we misplace fear and it turns into a lifestyle of anxiety. And I understand that. It's one of those places that I've brought to the foot of the cross for a long time, and I'm, I keep doing that. And God is showing me, and God is releasing me, and I am meeting God there. But I understand what fear is. And in, these, in this, this family, in these parents, this misplaced fear caused them to live in a state of what ifs. What if? We're kicked out of the synagogue. What if we're excommunicated? What if we are without community? What will our friends say? What will our friends do? Will they, they still associate with us? There was real fear there. But it can keep us blind. We need to address our fear. Be truthful about our fear. Acknowledge it in the moment. I know for me, one of the things that the Lord has shown me, that when I get in that control mode and I'm trying to control everything around me, that's when I need to stop and I have to ask myself the question, what am I afraid of? Because I'm controlling things and the only reason you control things is because you're afraid. I've also learned that when I'm afraid, to be truthful. I mean, to ask myself, what? Okay, I need to be truthful. What am I really afraid of? And sometimes it seems so, I don't know, it's, it's a little humiliating, you know, and you have to be humble and you have to lay aside pride and all those kinds of things, but to be truthful and stay focused on my issue. That sometimes when we're afraid, we want to blame somebody else. But what is my issue? What is God after in my life? Why am I afraid? I don't want to live a life of anxiety. And I've just recently started saying this and thinking this when things come up that seem to be overwhelming and fear seems to creep in, is to say, God is aware and he cares. He's aware and he cares. So what cures blindness? The first thing is it starts with belief. When I believe my desperation is an opportunity for God's power to be evident in my life. My desperation is God's opportunity. He's been waiting for this opportunity for every one of us in this room. He's been waiting for that opportunity for you to come to him and say, Okay, God, I can't do it on my own. I need you. Problems are a direct pathway to Jesus. Jesus was broken on the cross. He bled. His flesh was torn. He was wounded, and he bent down to me. And because of his willingness to be scorned, to be shamed, to be broken on the cross, I can be truthful with my own brokenness. He's made a way for us. He understands brokenness. Seriously, you can ask me. Would I give up any of those places of desperation when I found Jesus in these places that I've never found him before? No. No. It's hard. Like I said, it's heartbreaking. It's scary. But when I've turned to Jesus and I found him in places and ways that I've never experienced Jesus, I wouldn't give it up for anything. You've got to trust that what is coming at you is God coming for you. 
what cures blindness? My response. My response plays a part in the role in my results. But I want to say this. This is really, really important in saying this. Your response does not cause the miracle. Your response will not cause God not to do a miracle. It's his grace. It's his power. It's all about God. So you can't not make a miracle happen, and you can't make a miracle happen by your response. So we, we want to understand that. But when God moves in our lives and he's meeting us in those places, he will wait for our response. And what is he asking us to do? For me, it's always been putting aside pride, admitting I am broken in these places, that I need help, that I don't have it all together to surrender. It's addressing bitterness. He may say, you know, I'm I'm wanting to do this work in your life, but you got to address that bitterness in your life. You've got to face your insecurities. You need to forgive yourself. Those are the things he's asking us to, to respond to him with. He spat on the ground. He mixed it with dirt, or he, he picked up the ground. He mixed his saliva with it, made the mud, put it on the man's eyes, and he asked him to walk across town and wash in the pool of Siloam. What is he asking us to do? I know that many people would look at this who are germophobic and say, uh-uh, no way, I'm out of here. You're not going to spit in dirt and put it on my face because that really is gross. I'm not going to do that. You know, I'm not germophobic. I might ask my family, ask my kids, I'll eat anything. I'm just not that freaked out about a lot of things. I can, snotty noses don't bother me, dirty diapers don't bother me. I can, I share drinks with all my grandkids. Some people that's just totally, you know, gross. But I'm not like that. But there are other things that he's asking me to respond to that are really hard. Like, forgive your offender say you're sorry. Those are the things he's asking us to respond so that he can do the miraculous in our life. I don't know what it is for you, but I know he's asking you to respond to him. He not only put mud on his eyes, but he asked him to walk across town and wash in the pool. So when God asks us to do something, what, again, is our response? Okay, so he has to walk. It's like a mile, according to the commentaries, to where Jesus met this man to the Pool of Siloam. He had to walk down all these stairs. He had to have somebody help him. He had mud on his eyes. He couldn't see. And so not only, I mean, it's a spectacle. He's walking through town with mud on his eyes. That's, you know, that's kind of different. People don't see that all the time. What would be my response? I mean, sometimes we're asked to do something, we, our response is, that's inconvenient. That is really inconvenient. You mean you, I, you want me to walk all that way? I could just use a wet wipe. You know, I could get that off my eyes. <laughs> it's, is that really necessary, God, what you're asking me to do? And you know that nagging thing in you where he's asking you to do something and you're trying to, you know, negotiate with God. And it's like, well, what if I just do this? No, no, this is what I want you to do. Walk across town with mud in your eyes. Go wash in the pool of Siloam. Okay, God, (laughs) 
What is he asking us to do? When we respond carefully, Jesus moves deeply. The blind beggar responded. He says, I don't know whether he's a sinner. The man that put mud on my eyes, but I know this. I was blind, but now I can see. I don't know, he replied. What's awesome about this is that he was blind and Jesus saw him. He did not see Jesus. Jesus went to him and said, can I put mud on your eyes? He didn't run away. He said, now I want you to walk across town and walk in the pool of si- wash in the pool of Siloam. And, and he did it. This man heard Jesus and he obeyed Jesus. We don't need to know all the theology and all have to ask all the questions of when the Holy Spirit is nudging us in our response that Jesus is asking us to respond to. Be like the man. I met Jesus. I did what he told me to do, and now I can see. Respond in faith and obedience. What cures blindness? The last thing. When I believe I am the object of his search, he's looking for me. Again, he didn't see Jesus. Jesus saw him. He couldn't see. Jesus went to him in this desperate place, in his brokenness. He goes to us. He's there. He sees us. He recognizes you. He knows what's going on in your life. And he loves, not, loves us not in spite of our scars, but through them. Our desperation is our pathway to Jesus. And it's also the pathway for others to see Jesus in you. Just recently, we went to um, the Northwest Pastors Conference, and we um, heard this young Foursquare pastor, who's a church planter, share his story of desperation. His name is Russell Joyce, and he was born with Golden Haar Syndrome. They have no idea why that happens, but what it is, it causes a birth defect of, um, on your face. So you have this, this birth defect that you cannot hide. And I want you to hear his story. that the world gives love to beautiful things. I came out of the womb ugly and defective. Therefore, I will not be loved by who I am. But I learned the world also gives love to achievements. So if I'm going to be loved, it's going to have to come through the basis of my achievements. So she had me do this, this, um, this experiment, and it was weird. And I didn't know I want to share it with you, but then I realized, I'm in Eugene. Y'all love weird stuff. <laughs> right? So she had me travel back to my earliest memory where I realized the wound was starting to form. And I distinctly remember being a six-year-old boy in a Bay Area hospital. And I'm sitting there, and, and nurses are coming and going. I'm about to go under the knife for one of my first major operations. And nurses are coming and going. And my parents are both there, and they're smiling, and they're saying they love me, and, you know, that this is, this is normal. But I'm starting to realize that there's, there's, some, there's a lie <laughs> This isn't normal because I'm the one in the bed. You're not. (laughs) That's not normal, right? And she says to me, I want you, the present-day version, to stand in that room. And so I pull an Ebenezer Scrooge, Ghost of Christmas Pass, and I'm there in the room, right? 
And I'm looking at that six-year-old boy in the bed. She says, what do you want to say to him? And I just start crying. I don't know what to say to him. There's no way I can explain to him the fullness of what he's about to experience in his life. There's no way I can explain the complexity of the way he's going to be broken by broken people and the way he's going to break other people. I can't do it justice. And so what I do in the vision is I just walk over to the bed and I pull him in close and I just weep into his hair. I just cry. I just want him to know that I'm here and I'm with him. And then it hits me. I know what I want to say to him. It's a simple statement But it's the truest thing that could have ever been said to me. Past me, present me, future me. It's the truth. And so I bend down, I look him in his eyes, and I say, yes. Yes, it's true. You're broken. You're so very broken. But you're not ugly. And I choose you. Yes, yes. Hear this. This is important. Yes, you're broken. You are so broken. But you are not ugly. And I choose you. And then the counselor goes, and where is Jesus? And friends, I fall into the ground because the gospel hits me in a way it never has. Jesus is the one who has entered into the hospital room. God enters in and he wants to deliver a message, but he can't, right? There's, there's no way he can explain to us the full complexity of how broken this world is, how deep sin goes, what it was like when Lucifer rebelled. He can't explain what's about to happen. So what does he do? He comes to the bedside. We can't understand him, but we can touch him. We can see him and he holds us close and he weeps into our hair And then, and then we realize he bends down and on the cross he delivers the message of the Father. And it says, yes, you are broken, but you are not ugly and we choose you. We choose you. And see, here's the thing, friends. The only reason I could say that to that six-year-old boy is because I had walked that journey. Yeah. (sighs) Would you stand with me this morning? I'm going to ask that those who are going to be part of the prayer team to make your way up and be visible so people can see you. And and, um, if you're in this place this morning that you want prayer, you want to meet Jesus in those places, he accepts us the way we are. He sees us as beautiful in all of our brokenness. He sees us and he accepts us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you love us so deeply. (laughs) Give us courage, Lord, to be able to look at those places that we have been blind, that we would prefer not to um, go to, that we would meet you in profound ways. Thank you. We give this time to you in your precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Please let us know if you have questions or would like us to pray with you. You can contact the church office most weekdays at 503-266-4444 and anytime through canbefoursquare.com.